Welcome to Third Man Walking. It's September 1st, and I'm about to upload this episode. Today, I'm going to talk about some people I've played poker with without mentioning any of their names. I do want to highlight something I'll briefly mention again in about 10 minutes. Poker requires that you assess your opponents to some extent, but it's good to check yourself when you're being judgmental. I think I come close to that a couple times in this episode. That's mostly because I'm talking about players who I think, intentionally or not, misrepresent their poker ability to make money off of others. And if I'm right, that seems like a good reason to disapprove. But I do want to be careful because poker is supposed to be fun, and it's not like I cross my arms and sniff critically at everything I see at the table. If you play poker, you shouldn't do that either. You should also try not to get mad when opponents make bad plays and beat you because it's not healthy and because it's mostly good for you when your opponents make mistakes. You should mostly focus on yourself and things you can improve. Of course, one way to do that is to learn from what you see other people do, and so you need to be able to assess what's going on at the table. But it's important that your assessments serve a purpose beyond bolstering your ego. Okay, on with the show. Yale and I frequently end up in the same cul-de-sac in our many conversations about poker. We'll discuss something, the efficacy of a play, the likelihood of one of our opponents calling a big bluff, our thoughts on the win rate of a player we both know, and then one of us will say, we don't know anything. And what we mean when we say we don't know anything is that live poker is clouded by uncertainty. Now, that doesn't mean everything in poker is uncertain. Online players have kept databases for years that demonstrate certain principles, the most basic of which have been verified by newer tools like solvers. We know that playing tight is generally better than playing very loose, and that betting and raising are generally better than calling. So it's pretty easy to tell, even in live poker, who the biggest losing players are. If we see a player in tons of pots, limping, and playing passively, it's very unlikely that they're winning. But once a player crosses a low threshold of competence, you really don't know for sure how good they are or how good their plays are. You might have a pretty good idea if you've played with them for a while, but you don't know. Or to frame it differently, you don't know what moves or which players are winning the most over time or how much they're winning. Again, you might have an idea, but you don't know. Casinos and some of the app-based online poker games that have become more popular in the wake of the coronavirus aren't like public-facing online poker sites. There aren't records kept, it takes forever to play the number of hands necessary to draw meaningful conclusions, and the most profitable responses to your opponent's wacky plays aren't always obvious. So let's say that you have a friend with whom you've played dozens of times. He says he makes a lot of money in poker. You've seen him make many strange-looking plays, but he's aggressive and he builds lots of big stacks. So while you suspect he's exaggerating, who knows? Maybe he is a big winner, somehow. Let's say you and your friend are at the same table, playing 510 with starting stacks of $1,500. A new player, one you've never seen before, sits down. In his first orbit, this new player raises to $50 in early position. This is a really big raise in an unopened pot at 510, so you suspect this is a recreational player. Your friend, whose hand you don't know, 
raises to $175 in the low jack seat. The new player calls. So there's about $360 in the pot, and the flop comes ace-queen-5 with a flush draw. The new player checks, and your friend checks. The turn is an offsuit jack for a board of ace-queen-5-jack with a front door flush draw. The new player bets $300, almost the size of the pot, and your friend calls. The river is an offsuit four for a final board of ace-queen-5-jack-4. The new player goes all in for about $1,000, and your friend thinks for a while and calls. The new player shows ace-king, and your friend mucks. Now, you don't know what your friend had, but you know his hand wasn't very strong on this board. Ace-king chops the pot, ace-queen, ace-jack, ace-5, ace-4, and queen-jack all make two pairs and win, king-10 makes a straight, and aces, queens, and jacks all make sets. So what happened here? Did your friend re-raise light with ace-10 or say ace-deuce suited and feel obligated to call when he hit an ace? Did he have pocket kings and get stubborn even after an ace and a couple of other high cards flopped? This looks like a bad call. And if you suspected before that your friend was exaggerating how much he'd won, you're even more suspicious now. But let's say that your friend had played with this opponent several times and knew more about him than you did. Let's say your friend had good reason to believe this player would nearly always fire the turn and shove the river after the flop check through. Maybe then your friend's call was profitable if he had pocket kings, even though it didn't work this time. So was your friend's call a good play? Probably not, but it's impossible to know for sure, even though, on the surface, you have a lot of information about what happened. You know lots of money went in preflop, that your friend checked the flop and called huge turn and river bets, and that your friend couldn't be top pair with a king kicker. It looks like he made a poor call, but you don't really know. Let's say your friend frequently makes plays like this, and let's say he tells you his win rate is really good, say, 11 big blinds an hour. Your immediate thought should be that he's just talking about the last couple months in which he's run hot, or that he's just lying to you or maybe to himself. People do that because they're insecure or because they'd rather not confront the fact that they're mostly wasting time at the poker table. But you don't know. Maybe you think he really is that good. He wins big pots, he builds big stacks, you've seen it. And if he is that good, maybe these crazy calls he makes are actually good too. Would you make more money if you made these crazy calls against those opponents? You don't know. You don't know anything. You can only guess. Also, what is a win rate anyway? A variance calculator will tell you that good or bad stretches in poker can go on for a very long time. Maybe your friend really has been winning a lot for quite a while. But even that would only tell you so much about how well he plays or how much he's likely to win going forward. Ultimately, how well your friend does in cash games is only so relevant to you. His win rate is none of your business, and in some ways it shouldn't matter whether he's telling the truth about it. You know what your win rate is, and what your struggles with the game are, and that's what you should focus on. But your lack of certainty can lead you into confusion and self-doubt, especially if you aren't running well. You might know your fundamentals are good, but in live poker where so many pots aren't primarily about the fundamentals, it might seem like you could be playing much better if only you knew the perfect ways to attack your extremely exploitable opponents. And your lack of certainty has deep implications that can affect your place at the table, your decision to pay tournament markup for a player, or your decision to play poker in the first place. 
Today, I'll discuss two common player types in the live poker world, whose lives might be affected by the gap between how good they might seem to be and how good they actually are, whether that gap exists in their own minds or someone else's. The first player is the dreamer, whose self-confidence and recent results are leading him in some strange directions. One dreamer I know lives in a small poker market. He has a job and plays poker in the evenings. I played a lot with this guy years ago in some very good games, and he struck me as thoughtful and smart, but my guess is that he was only winning a small amount or maybe breaking even. Before the quarantine, he seemed to have built a bankroll, which is something, but he was considering quitting his job and moving to a larger poker market where the games are tougher. A few months ago, he described to me a game he played in during a World Series circuit stop in a city not known for poker. It wasn't a high-stakes game, but there were straddles and re-straddles that went around the table and sometimes were several hundred dollars. He had a five-figure score in that game and was excited to carry his luck into the summer in Las Vegas, where he imagined the cash games would be similar because, well, that's also the World Series. And when he said this, I don't know exactly where this guy's head is at, but my radar pretty much exploded. There are hundreds of cash games on any given day in Las Vegas during the World Series, so there's always a chance you'll find a great one, but most of them are tough relative to live cash games elsewhere in the US, and the quality of games at a random circuit stop in a small market has nothing to do with how they'll be during the summer in Las Vegas. When this guy suggested there would be a strong correlation, I thought, man, I'm not really sure you know what you're getting yourself into. Again, I haven't played with this guy in a while, I don't know how good he is now, and it's possible, given what I don't know, that he could make it work as a pro in a tough market. I don't know enough about him to dismiss the possibility, and I hope that if he listens to this, he'll appreciate that this is not an attack on him. He's a good guy, and I'm absolutely rooting for him. But I've heard this story before. A player shows up in a new city, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, after a good run in some random game in the middle of nowhere. He's pretty sure he can make it in poker, and he's uprooted his life to do it. He plays a ton of hours in his first few months in the new city. It doesn't seem like he's doing especially well, and then he kind of just stops showing up. So what happened to him? You don't know for sure, but you suspect he found a new job or moved home. Now, maybe there's nothing wrong with this. Maybe he's young, and he had limited expenses, and he hadn't started a real career. He had a dream, it didn't work out, but he tried. And as long as he didn't end up deeper in debt, Maybe that's fine. He's only out a few months. No regrets. But it can be dangerous when players completely alter their lives because of a positive stretch of variance. They can quit their jobs, pause careers, and take on debt because they think they're better than they are. The main reason playing poker professionally even made sense for me was because the jobs I had previously were pretty much dead ends. If I'd had a good job that I didn't hate with some chance of advancement, I wouldn't have quit it. Poker's hard, and it's easy for the game to trick us. We can journey miles and miles in pursuit of a mirage. The dreamer is mostly harmless to everyone but himself, but that might not be the case for another player type who I'll call the Pied Piper. Last season, we discussed the tournament market, in which many players sell pieces of their action for wildly inflated prices, 
but we didn't discuss the coaching market, which provides more opportunities for players to sell themselves, and in turn gives the buyer the chance to invest in poker minds they might not actually know much about. The poker world is full of people who will teach you to play poker for a price. Some of them are very good at what they do. But the coaching market is funny. If you want to promote yourself as a coach, it's easy to create at least the vague impression that you're a good player, even if you're not. Poker Instagram is full of pictures of players' chip stacks, which are generally meant to convey that the photographer is some sort of crusher. Obviously, all they really mean is that the person behind the picture accumulated that stack one time, which doesn't prove anything about their ability. You can make videos to promote yourself as a coach. You can make podcasts. And at least in those settings, you have to say some things you believe about poker. But consumers of poker coaching might not be able to tell whether your advice is any good. So if you want coaching, it can be hard to know who to seek out. Also, there's the fact that good poker players make good hourly wages and should therefore want to charge a lot to spend time giving away what they know to someone else. I've never coached and I don't think I'm the most qualified person to do so. And even I make enough actually playing that what I charge per hour for lessons would probably seem like a lot to a beginning player. None of this is to impugn the many good coaches out there or to impugn training sites, which can solve the problem I just mentioned about how expensive really good advice should be by scaling coaching to reach many people at once. But the difficulty in knowing who's good and the complicated incentives involved mean the coaching market is filled with bad products. A friend of mine is a very serious recreational player who had a large tournament score last year and decided to invest in his game. He got in touch with a relatively well-known poker player via social media and arranged for that player to give him lessons. I interviewed my friend about these lessons. He asked me not to use his name or the coach's name or to use his voice because he still likes the coach personally. The coach was briefly a well-known figure early in the poker room. I played with this coach in a few tournaments in 2016, and he played a style that I can't believe was sustainably profitable even 5 or 10 years before that, usually limping and calling preflop, and playing with little aggression on later streets. If my friend had asked me about being coached by this player, I would have told him that it would have been a huge waste of money. The coach asked my friend for $2,000 up front and said he would coach for between an hour and a half and two and a half hours per session. My friend estimates that he got about five hours of coaching out of the deal, so it essentially amounted to $400 an hour. As my friend recalls it, this is the kind of advice he got for that money. The coach told him about a hand where he cold-called a three-bet out of position, already a play most good players make only in very special circumstances, and then led multi-way with a bet on a board of ace-queen-rag. This is usually a horrible play, and a good player would probably only do this when they have a monster hand and they believe their opponents are both very passive and not paying attention at all. The coach asked my friend what he thought he had, and my friend said it was mostly ace-queen or ace-jack. The coach said he did have ace-queen and that one of his opponents went all in over his bet with pocket kings. So, he won the hand. <laughs> I have no idea what you're supposed to learn about poker strategy from this. My friend told the coach about a hand he played, in which he re-raised preflop with pocket tens and got several callers. The flop came king, jack, rag, and my friend checked. The coach said he would have continuation bet instead, a play that is clearly losing money under most circumstances. He also told my friend he continuation bets the same percentage of the pot on every board, even if the pot is multi-way. This coach couldn't offer anything resembling sound poker advice, which 
wasn't surprising to me, having seen this guy play. As my friend put it, I gave this guy two grand for nothing. $400 an hour for coaching from a guy who probably hasn't been an above average player in a decade if he ever was. Whether this coach knows it or not, this was a grift. I have no idea how many students this coach has, but my guess is that they're bankrolling his poker playing at this point. What follows is a document of a live session I made last year and didn't use in the first season of Third Man Walking. It's good for this episode because the last big hand I played that day was against another Pied Piper figure, so we'll discuss that on the other side. So, just got back from the casino. I I had a really bad day today, and I think it'll be therapeutic to tell you about it. I've been playing a 5-10-20 game lately, and today I sat down in the game and within 90 minutes, I had lost $5,500. Then I went to 5-5 for about six hours after that and lost about another $700, bringing my total for the day to about $6,200. I don't know that any of it really should have been avoided. I'm pretty happy with the way I played. But it's just one of those days where things don't really go well. So in the first main hand, I have ace jack of clubs on the button and raise to $60. It's a, it's a three blind game uh, and the natural small blind raises to $250. This is a long time local pro who's very aggressive, plays an extremely high variance game, and has been pretty successful, especially in the tournament scene for a long time, but plays super aggressively, turns up with some weird hands sometimes, and puts people in rough spots. So I have ace-jack of clubs and make it 60 from the button. He's in the small blind and makes it 250, and uh, I call and uh, we are about $2,700 deep at this point. So the flop comes queen of hearts, six of hearts, deuce of clubs. And so I have ace high and some backdoor possibilities. Um, I can make the nuts with uh, backdoor clubs, or I can make a backdoor straight on occasion as well. He bets 200, which I'm thinking he would do with a whole lot of hands. And it's a fairly small bet, which I'd expect. So uh, I call with ace high and with some fun, funky stuff that can happen on the turn. The turn, however, is the is an offsuit eight, which does not do anything to improve my hand. But he now checks. So when he checks, I decide to take over the betting lead. There's $925 in the pot, and I bet $550, and he calls. So now there's $2,025 in the pot, and the board is Queen of Hearts, Six of Hearts, Deuce of Clubs, and then an offsuit eight. 
the river is an offsuit four, which is mostly irrelevant. He checks again, and we go all in for $1,725 effective. The reason I like this hand to bluff on the river is we do not have a heart, which is actually good. We want him to have heart draws that miss when we uh, go all in with a hand like this. We block aces, which I don't think is a huge part of his range right now, but is still kind of cool. And we block ace-queen um, because we have an ace in our hand. I think also I'm giving up on a lot of worse heart combos and club combos either on the turn or on the river. So this is one of the worst hands that I would really go for it here with. I think it would be mostly ace jacket clubs um, and ace ten of clubs. And I, I think sometimes I'd, I'd throw in the hearts as well because, you know, ace jack of hearts, hands like that, because I should really have a lot of ace queen here and a lot of pocket sixes that flopped a set and a lot of pocket eights that turned a set. So I think I have a lot of good value, and I think he has shown a lot of weakness in this hand. So I, I think this is a good hand to go for it. I think it's a good decision. So he thinks about it for a while and calls with pocket tens with the ten of hearts, which is, I don't know. I mean, this guy's been uh, really successful, so far be it for me to say. Um, he's certainly played big for longer than I ever have, and maybe he saw some dynamic in the hand that I missed, but when he has the Ten of Hearts, especially, when he has that card in particular, it really cuts down on the number of bluffs I'm supposed to have, and, you know, if I were him, um, I would let it go, but like I said, he plays this very high variant style and has been pretty successful with it, so, you know, yellow. So, I was pretty badly stuck after that hand and then about 15 minutes later I played another big pot against the same guy where the cutoff opened to $75. I raised to $325 in the small blind with uh, pocket kings. This very aggressive pro raised to $920 I think in the uh, the natural big blind and uh, I shoved and he called and he had pocket aces so I, I mean uh, it's just a hundred percent not avoidable and um, I just get stacked there every time I don't hit a king which I didn't hit a king we ran it twice I didn't hit a king on the first board and on the second board I did hit one but he made a straight on the river so boom $5,500 up in smoke. I can't remember if the 5-10-20 game broke or I just quit. I think I probably just quit. But either way, I sat down in a 1,000 cap 5-5 game, which is a frustrating place to be if you're already down many thousands of dollars for the day. There was a guy a few seats to my right who was playing about 50% of hands, usually raising to very large sizings like $35 or $40.
I played with him a few times in the previous few weeks, and my read was that he was aggressive and sometimes put players in tough spots post-flop, but that he was mostly good for the game and was probably donating over time, mostly because even in most 5-5 games, you can't really play 50% of hands and race to seven big blinds per hand and still win. It's just way too easy to wind up in spots where your opponents have much stronger ranges than you do. Anyway, this player had lost a pot against me and declared that I was tight, which is true, and that he wouldn't be paying me off anymore, but we soon got into a big hand. He was in middle position and raised to $25, so smaller than he was raising in many other hands he opened. The low jack and high jack, who both re-raise a lot, called. I had 8-7 of hearts in the cutoff and about $1,200, uh, a little bit more than the initial raiser had. So it would be fine to just call, but based on my image, the fact that the raiser typically used bigger sizings, and the fact that there were two callers in between who likely couldn't continue to a re-raise, I decided to squeeze. So I made it $135. The original raiser called and the other two players folded. So there were about $325 in the pot. The flop was seven of spades, five of hearts, deuce of spades, giving me top pair and a variety of backdoor draws with my eight seven of hearts. My opponent checked, I bet $80 and he called. The turn was the six of hearts for a board of seven of spades, five of hearts, deuce of spades, six of hearts. So now I had top pair and an open-ended straight flush draw. This seemed like a really good situation until my opponent donk bet all in for his last $885, almost twice the pot. I thought for a long time, piecing together what my opponent might do this with. I beat all spade draws he could reasonably have, except 9-8 of spades, which I don't think he'd go all in with, and all remaining heart draws. I had considerable equity against almost anything else. Despite the awful price I was getting, I felt like I had to call, a move I later confirmed by double-checking with software. So I called, and he showed two black eights, one of the few hands I was doing poorly against. The river bricked, and he doubled up. Now, I'll admit, this hand sticks in my craw a little bit because it was a really bad day, and because I found out weeks later that this player had recorded video of me tanking and posted it on social media without my knowledge. But I remain as puzzled by his seemingly spewy play as I was the day he made it. I'd never fold aces, kings, or queens to this guy, and I have all the combos of those. His massive shove does force me to fold some flush draws with overcards that have equity against him, but he's taking an enormous risk in trying to get those hands to fold. So since then, that player has apparently moved to smaller games like 5-5 with a 500 cap, and even 2-3, which is a very beatable game in many markets, but isn't where you want to be if you're in Los Angeles and there's a big flat rake every time you go to the flop. So here's the kicker to all this. This guy is a poker coach who sells lessons at advertised rates of $180 an hour or more. $180 to talk poker for an hour with a guy who, based on his game and his evident troubles moving up, probably can't beat deep 5-5. His coaching, I thought, was an absurd hustle. But unlike in the case of the coaching my friend received, in this case, I don't know with absolute certainty that this guy's coaching is a grift. This guy meets the threshold of basic competence I talked about earlier. He's aggressive, and he frequently plays big pots against people he's better than. 
if you told me he was winning seven big blinds an hour in deep 5-5 over the last year, I'd find that incredibly surprising, especially in light of the fact that he doesn't seem to be playing that game anymore. But if you showed me the evidence, well, I'd have a lot of questions, but I guess I'd eventually have to believe it. In fact, I haven't presented any evidence here that proves anything. In 2020, it's probably not possible to beat 5-5 long-term while playing 50% of hands and raising to 7 or 8 big blinds per hand, but I don't know that. That's just my opinion. I've told you this guy has been playing smaller games, and implied that this was because he wasn't doing better in bigger ones, but that doesn't prove anything either. I've seen this guy playing smaller games several times and never seen him playing bigger, but I don't see him every day. I don't know he isn't playing bigger at least some percentage of the time, and I don't know he moved down because he was struggling. Maybe, for example, he moved down to glean insights that would help students who were playing similar stakes. So maybe this guy is actually some sort of crusher, despite tons of evidence to the contrary. The odds of that to me are vanishingly small, but I can't even prove it to you that those odds are accurate. I can only appeal to common sense and my experience. Even that play he made with pocket eights is actually more weird than obviously bad. It looked spewy and crazy to me. And if I were going to donk bet on the turn as he did, I'd probably use a much smaller sizing rather than going all in. But I ran this spot through a solver and it does think he can do what he did on the turn with pocket eights about 1% of the time. I'd almost never make this play and I don't think you should either, but it actually isn't a provably terrible play, even though it's unusual. So what have I really shown here? Nothing. I've proven nothing. In live poker, once a player meets that very low threshold of competence, we don't conclusively know anything. Maya Angelou said, when people show you who they are, believe them. But in poker, you should be skeptical. It's possible they're deceiving you about who they are, and it's possible they themselves don't know. When a player has trackable recent online results in cash games or over thousands of tournaments, you can be reasonably sure of their ability. But for anyone else, you can only guess, so you should be skeptical. And feel free, by the way, to extend that skepticism to me, your host. Throughout the episodes of this podcast, I've presented myself as a successful mid-stakes poker pro, but I've provided no hard evidence to back that up. Maybe I am what I say I am, or maybe I'm a pretender with a trust fund. In the end, you don't know anything. for listening to Third Band Walking. You can find me on Twitter at Third Walking and via email at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com. 